0: From yesterday's innovations to tomorrow's technologies, this is Market Scales EdTech Today with your host, Kevin Hogan.
1: Okay, with me today is Daniel Williamson. Uh, Daniel leads the day-to-day operations of a company called OpenStax, uh, which is uh, one of the largest open education resource providers, OER, uh, in the world, with nearly 70 employees, 25 interns, and annually serving over three million students at 58% of all the degree granting institutions in the United States. OpenStack's 38 textbooks have already saved students more than $700 million in textbook costs and have achieved a more than 17% adoption rate in introductory college courses, a rate that rivals most of uh, other commercial textbooks. So Daniel, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Congratulations on your successes so far. Uh, where where are you clicking in from?
0: Uh, my bedroom in Houston, Texas.
1: <laughs> all right, another, another day in in the uh, in the pan, in pandemic paradise, right?
0: Exactly. You know, it's become very homey. Uh, it's a little tight, but making it work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. As as what we're all doing. So uh, I appreciate you you uh, clicking in here. There are so many ways. Uh, that we could take this conversation. But first, I just wanna get a little bit deeper into OpenStax, uh, your history uh, with open education resources as a concept. Uh, Where did it all start?
0: Yeah, Um, so as you mentioned, we are part of Rice University. Uh, I went to Rice University and probably wouldn't guess this uh, being, you know, managing director of a education technology company like OpenStax, but my degree is actually in opera performance. So I'm a, I'm a singer by training. Um, And so I was graduating in 2008, which you'll recall is the height of the recession. Um, And I was sort of thinking, you know, what, what should I do? Um, The entire time I was at Rice, I was also doing web development. Um, And so I started talking to um, my, my, uh, boss at the time. And she said, oh, you should talk to Rich Baronet and Sydney Burris uh, over in the engineering school at Rice. And um, one thing led to another. And Sydney said, you know, a musician working with a bunch of tech people at Connections, which is the precursor to OpenStax, would be really interesting. Um, And so I joined uh, Connections um, and pretty much immediately fell in love with the mission, which is to democratize access to information, and really to transform learning so that education works for every single student. Um, so it was kind of one of those weird sort of mailroom to the boardroom kind of transitions that happened over time. Um, so I was working, at, you know, basically doing XML coding in a, a cubicle in a bank building uh, <laughs> right next to Rice University. Uh, fell in love with the mission, expressed my desire to grow and Luckily for me, I was in the right place, right time, and Rich, our founder and director, asked me if I would sort of take over project management for this new thing called OpenStax, which is where we were creating a bunch of new, freely available open source textbooks on the Connections platform. Um, And now we are 12 years later, and uh, I've been fortunate enough to, to be trusted with leading the organization. As you mentioned, 70 employees, I need to update my LinkedIn profile because it's now about 85 employees. Wow. Uh, and we just, we've been just growing leaps and bounds year over year. Um, so it's been a really exciting ride.
1: That's fantastic. And I know that the, the concept of OER, um, I've been covering for a long time. Uh, and it's always been kind of a, an esoteric sort of conversation uh, that we would have at ISTE or TCEA and Be advocates. I don't know if you know Andrew Marsenic, but uh, Mm -hmm. he is uh, a a great advocate. I think he was with the Obama administration for a while in the Department of Education. Uh, But it never, I, I never felt like I had my my hands on it. That it was something that was real and 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 tangible, right? Um, Mm -hmm. With everything else happening now during the pandemic, um, have you seen any sort of pivot to where I mean? Obviously, you have seen it be tangible since 2008. Uh, Talk a little bit about that progression. And as we sit here in 2020, uh, are there any differences to the concepts because of the situation we're in right now?
0: Hmm. I might back up a little bit on that question because I think the idea of the intangibility of OER is one that's really, really important to address. Yeah. Um, So in, sort of the OpenStax world, we think of um, sort of two generations of OER. You have OER, we call it OER 1.0, which is essentially locally created content for local use. You might think of a professor in their office um, who has, you know, the best textbook on, I don't know, physics, and it's their way of approaching it. But if you kind of extrapolate that out a little bit further, it might not be perfect for every other faculty member um, that's teaching physics. And so that's where what we call OER 2.0, or the OpenStax model kind of comes in, which is we try to align to the standard scope and sequence of a typical college course so that it's an 80% solution for every single faculty member. And then they can take and adapt around the edges and make it perfect for their individual course. Um, so that's what we do at OpenStax, and it provides, a, I, I think, a greater level of, quote, tangibility, because it is, it looks and feels, and frankly, often when you print it, it smells like a traditionally published uh, textbook. Um, but the thing underlying it—the the open license and the modularity and the way we construct that content gives it new life. And I think to the second part of your question, which is, what's happened, you know, now that we're into this, this pandemic world, and, and frankly, you know, so many more classes have been forced to, to challenge their assumptions about what an online class could look like. You know, we're seeing a lot of really interesting stuff happen. Um, one of the biggest things that we're seeing happen is an increase in the usage of our content. Mm-hmm. Um, so since uh, March, we've seen 154% increase in our adoptions, uh, 1.4 million additional students this semester versus where we were in January. Um, that is astronomical for us. I mean, our total uh, enrollment is about 4.5 million um, right now. So huge increases. We believe that that increase is due to um, primarily teachers looking for easier ways to integrate it with their learning management systems. Not having to say go read you know chapter whatever and expecting that student to have to go buy the book when they don't have a bookstore, of course they can get it from Amazon. But um, and so we're seeing that kind of shift where more and more of our traffic is coming from learning management systems where it's directly embedded into the the, the course cartridges, uh, and we're also seeing you know more culturally responsive, more equity centered um, conversations happening at universities and colleges and high schools around the country, where they're saying, how do we make sure students afford the resources that we're assigning them, especially now when they may be facing economic hardships or their parents might be facing economic hardships? How can we remove that last straw barrier? Um, so, you know, we believe that OER is free, uh, should be free. And that we can, if there are value-added services on top of it, those can be more affordable by having the core content be uh, freely available. Um, so those, you know, those are a couple of things that I think are really interesting. Um, the third one that I, I I add is that we're also seeing an increasing shift to using technology, so online courseware, uh, different types of studying tools, um, and I already mentioned the LMS. Um, But so I think with that online shift, faculty and students are looking for ways to maintain an engaging class. And one way to do that is have something that's a little bit deeper uh, and more uh, engaging than simply just a read experience So uh, we're seeing a huge number of students engage with our online reading platform more so than we've been in the past. Tons of highlights and notes being made. Tons of students using the online study guides. And then a novel thing about OpenStax is we have an ecosystem of more than fifty partners. So these are companies that provide, you know, online homework solutions around our core content. Almost think like a Red Hat Linux style model, hmm. uh, if that's uh, yeah. familiar in the open source parlance. Yeah. Um, and we're just seeing just tons and tons of additional use of those types of engagement tools and products.
1: And when you talk about your content, give us a a little bit more of a a description of how it's generated and who is generating it and and how it's distributed.
0: Yeah, great question. So um, our content is developed by faculty that we pay and reviewers that we pay. Uh, And we make sure that they are diverse, um, both in the types of schools that they uh, represent or come from, as well as uh, demographically, right? We want to make sure that this is a a um, really—it brings in a a bunch of different voices and histories and stories, um, something that we actually are trying to get better. But the way that we actually go through developing this content is one, we secure a grant. We are a nonprofit and we're lucky to have, uh, the amazing support of, uh, tons of foundations. Um, we use that money then to pay off to recruit authors and pay authors. Um, we then put it through a very rigorous editorial process, uh, tons of peer review. We have professional art development, and then we, we bring that content back in-house and publish it on our our content management system that's homegrown Um, it's all xml based so it's semantic web and it also automatically sort of generates the the table of contents the the index the 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 display of all that content that allows us to keep it up to date and to also publish it out in a variety of different formats like uh, you know a web view pdf Uh, and then also to push it out into other platforms even more uh, easily. Um, And then this fall, we're actually, right now, we're in the process of rolling out a new uh, type of, uh, uh, a new version of the content, which is all gonna be made available in Google Docs. So that faculty can just go in, grab the section they want, and then edit to their heart's content in a platform that they're already super familiar with. Um, So that's already started to go live. We have several of our titles already available in Google Docs. yeah, so that's, that's how we kind of develop all that content. Um, the final thing that I would share is that we are incredibly open and transparent, and we recognize that every, <laughs> any single textbook you ever get is always gonna have errors. Yeah. And so on our website, we actually have a, a place where faculty can go in and tell us about an error they found, uh, and then track it, sort of like you track your package on Amazon, it says where it is in the process of being reviewed and, and when it hits the updates, and then we push it out to all of the, the different formats.
1: It's almost like a, a, a wiki, uh, like a wiki model.
0: Yeah, kind of like a wiki model, except there's a little bit more control, right? Because if you think about Wikipedia, um, anybody can go in and edit anything. Yeah. OpenStax maintains a canonical version of our content um, because. One of the things that we found was faculty don't like things changing all of a sudden as they're teaching, right? And so we maintain this canonical version. Anybody can create and fork their own version, uh, but that canonical version is something that we uh, maintain and employ uh, subject matter experts to provide that peer review.
1: Got it, got it. you mentioned a little bit earlier that you're talking about colleges, but you also mentioned K-12s, but you, you straddle both of those, those worlds.
0: Well, the, the interesting thing about our library is that we target those intro level college courses, um, where, where you can think that it has you know huge, uh, opportunity for just college, but also you have your AP courses, you have your advanced high school courses, um, that fit right in that sweet spot. So we see, uh, tons of well we're seeing an increasing amount of uh, k-12 users uh taking and using this content um we have targeted ap courses so ap physics bio uh, economics and u.s history are available right this minute um and then uh over the past couple of years we've been seeing just a lot more interest from the k-12 space i think that this is because more and more schools are um have devices in the classroom, and especially with COVID, when um, students were forced to go home and they might have only had a classroom set of resources. Um, I think that you know instructors got super innovative <laughs> or resource driven and Googled free textbooks and probably found open yeah. stack and we're going to use this thing. Um, so. So we've been seeing, I think it's around a 200% increase uh, since last year in K-12 and about a million students now in that K-12 sector.
1: That's amazing. So I think that the first article I wrote or edited about the death of the textbook was probably like 2003, 2004. (laughs) And I know uh, people have been writing that uh, even earlier into the last century about, the the textbook being dead, obviously not. Uh, But let's talk a little bit about the textbook industry um, Mm. and the perceptions of what is valid content or invalid content or, you know, um, and when you look at the big three, you look at the HMHs, you look at the Pearsons. I'm not afraid to talk about them. They're not sponsoring this. So, Uh, uh, you know, I think a, a lot of times purchases were made on curricula because of those, brands and because of kind of like a good housekeeping seal of approval, right? And then you talk about OER and it's like, well, we're not as confident as we are on where those sources are, especially when you get into maybe school boards who are approving budgets for a particular school district. Now, at the university level, I mean, I think you have, if you have professors and, and, and authors whose names are against the, the, the content that you're talking about, that kind of uh, gives Uh, a seal of approval there but talk about those perceptions and again you talk about that increase maybe people aren't concerned as concerned about that when they're in a remote setup and as you say they're looking for resources they're looking for anything uh, to improve the way they teach
0: yeah it's it's an incredibly important question um and frankly one that i think still has a ways to go brands are very important I mean, it's the ways that we quickly, you know, source and vet content. Um, OpenStax has put a lot of energy into creating a strong, recognizable brand um, and aligning that with very strong, quality-driven uh, product. Right, making sure that the the content is incredibly well peer-reviewed, that it's written by subject matter experts. But you know, to your point, um, I think sentiment is changing. Um, you quoted a statistic um, from my bio, which is that OpenStax now has a 17% adoption rate, which rivals the major publishers. That didn't happen overnight. <laughs> that happened with a lot of uh, <laughs> blood, sweat, and tears, I guess as they say. Yep. Um, and we we have we had to convince people when we introduced free textbooks and free content, um, faculty were skeptical, and right to be so, right. Um, it took a lot of convincing and getting people to take the time um, to evaluate the content and say it's good. The reality in that, in that higher ed space is the faculty member is the last, the faculty member who's assigning a textbook is the last level of peer review, right? They need to, they go through and they determine whether or not that content is good. And I think what has worked really in um, OpenStack's favor is that while Pearson and McGraw-Hill and all of the big publishers um, are known for having very good content, it is very good. They're also known for having very high prices, prices that out, um, outpaced the value of the product that they were selling. Um, and OpenStax came in and said, we could do the exact same for a lot cheaper, so much so that it's free. Um, and, and so it worked in our favor that those prices were very, very high uh, to really introduce this new idea of freely available and open source content that could be taken and adapted and used. And so now we're, we're I, would, I would say that OpenStax has very strong brand recognition and that brand is associated very closely with quality content. Um, the publishers are also, you know, starting to adapt their business models a bit. Um, one of the new introductions in the higher ed space that they have, are working on are programs that are essentially automatically bill a student for their resource. Um, they often go by names like inclusive access. Um, but really, what it is, is just a, a way to take choice away from students um, and force those students to opt out of the purchase of the textbook rather than opt in. Um, They often promise, you know, better pricing models or better pricing for students uh, because they're getting essentially 100% sell through. Um, And we have, you know, a bunch of concerns about that. But if it's going to save students money, we think that's great. The thing that we would ask um, administrators and faculty members as they're evaluating these new programs is if it is such a great deal for students. Why are you not giving them the opportunity to opt into that deal rather than forcing them to opt out? So our simple request around these inclusive access programs or what we call them automatic billing programs is simply make it an opt in program. And if you're going to have a good deal, make it a good deal. Students are rational. They will choose the best deal for them.
1: Yeah. Accountants might uh, think differently about that. But (laughs) (laughs)
0: they can pay for it, too.
1: (laughs) That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, Talk a little bit about uh, any changes in the way you deliver content, um, whether that's a result of the pandemic or not. I mean, just the way that we're talking right now, a lot of uh, synchronous recordings, uh, teachers creating their own content themselves by recording their own lectures and, and saving them. Talk a little bit about what you have on the horizon when it comes to that.
0: Absolutely. So even before the pandemic, where we anticipated that uh, content was going, uh, and in fact, you know, maybe a quick pause. The the, the you mentioned the death of the textbook. We agree with you, like, but you have to also align with like a mental construct that gets people comfortable with what it is. So that's why OpenStack still talks about our content being textbooks. Yeah, uh, because it does have that value that 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 breadth of content is available. Um, But from the very beginning, our goal was not just to produce another textbook, it was to produce content that could be used, reused, and adapted for a variety of different means. Our own kind of theory of where things are going to be going are, uh, you know, deeper integrations with learning management systems, where it's not just content, but it's content plus assessments, plus uh, instructional tools. To help gauge and measure how students are performing and where we might want to seek to uh, remediate or enrich for students. And similarly, at OpenStax, because we are part of Rice University, a uh, research university, we also want to learn like what are the best interventions and when do we provide those interventions um, for students to make sure that they're learning to their best, best ability. Um, and, to that, and to that end, we have built a tool that we call OpenStax Tutor, um, which is a sort of machine learning informed courseware product um, that ingests all of our OpenStax content, um, creates a more uh, spaced and elegant reading experience. So you might read a section, you'll get a, either, you know, a video from YouTube or uh, a simulation from FET um, and then you're asked different questions to test your understanding. And then we use different types of uh, algorithms to space out the information. So you're not just learning chapter one, you're learning chapter one, but you're also you know, getting a preview of what might be coming in chapter two. Or if you're in chapter five, you might be getting some uh, reminders of different concepts that you've engaged with in previous sections. Um, and so I think we believe that there's been a ton of technological advance in other sectors, but it hasn't really yet made it into uh, higher education or education broadly. Um, And so our OpenStax Tutor tool is seeking to bring those tools uh, to to light in um, the education space while using our educational content produced as that core uh, kernel um, that uh, supplies all the core knowledge that's necessary.
1: That's very cool stuff. Now, let's talk uh, a little bit about the, uh, the digital equity piece to the mission of OpenStax. Um, you know, again, talking about things that were conceptual uh, over the years, going to events and talking about the, wringing our hands over the digital equity concept and, and how, do we, how do we solve it. And then March 13th happens. And uh, the high school lover, their their tech directors went from the conceptual to getting into their cars with hotspots and driving out hotspots to students. Um, Mm -hmm. Big telco companies actually finally gave people access uh, at at, at a lower rate that they they could afford. So we found ways to solve that thing. Uh, OER seems to be a big piece of that puzzle beyond just the, the access part of that. Talk a little bit about uh your mission when it comes to that
0: absolutely i mean first of all thanks to everybody who has chipped in there i was very fortunate to be able to work with uh houston's mayor on our task force to address those digital divide issues and i was shocked when i found out that 50 percent of about 50 percent of houston area households lacked high-speed internet
1: connectivity right
0: totally different world right? right like crazy Right. And I and, and, and mean, thank you to the T-Mobile and all the others who have helped us get low-cost, high-speed internet to all those students and devices to those students. It's been a huge effort. Um, from, you know, the OpenStax perspective, a device is only as good as the content it can deliver, right? If you have a device, but you have no content, you're going to still struggle. So we are that half of the, the equation, um, and we believe that all students should have access to this fundamental knowledge, right? If you think about physics, physics hasn't changed all that much. Yes, there have been new discoveries, um, but it hasn't changed all that much that it should be so expensive that it's prohibitive for students to engage with and schools to afford. Um, And so we seek to lower that cost. But beyond that, you know, I mentioned something earlier, um, which is that we're also trying to build in an equity first approach here. We want students to be able to see themselves in the content and you know, not just be the, the famous people who probably and you know, frankly, are white males. Um, so we're seeking out new authors. We're seeking out authors that are going to bring diverse perspectives. We're seeking out um, uh, opportunities to highlight um, uh, culturally responsive teaching practices. In fact, a couple of years back, we published a framework. Um, by which we approach um, our content development that looks at representation in our images, our our authorship. Um, And just a couple of months ago, we announced that we're significantly expanding the OpenStax library, uh, seeking to double the size of the library over the next four years, um, thanks to funding from the Gates Foundation, Hewlett Foundation, uh, Cook Foundation, and and, and a bunch of other uh, private uh, donors. And one of the things that we've made core to that project is we really want diverse authors. Uh, We we are are working hard uh, to recruit them uh, and now they're in super demand. So we know we're we're working overtime to make that happen. Um, We're also on the publishing side. So like once we get the content out there, we also have an institutional partner program Where we work directly with institutions around the country and we're seeking not just the big marquee schools but schools that are typically overlooked Uh, we're working closely with um, a bunch of minority serving institutions Um, in my backyard we're working with texas southern which i'm super excited about Um, and so we're really trying to bring that lens to our work and i think that's something that's really exciting and made possible frankly because we are a nonprofit. that's our mission that is our goal is to ensure that all students have equitable access to high quality learning resources well,
1: that's fantastic and i knew that the uh the toughest part of this conversation would be to uh to end it because we could go on for a while these issues are so important and so essential even uh without a pandemic so I really appreciate your time and your insights, Daniel, and um, the work that you folks are doing at OpenStax is uh, hugely impressive and important. And uh, just thanks for joining.
0: Thank you, great to be with y'all.
1: And thanks to everybody for, for watching. We'll see you at the next one.